The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 19. Glory to you, O Lord. After he had said this, Jesus went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. When he had come near Bethphage and Bethany, at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. Those those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road. As he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice, saying, for all the deeds of power that had been, they had seen, saying, blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. Their city had been laid waste by war. The beautiful temple and the protective city walls among the things that now existed only as piles of charred rubble. And the best and brightest among them had been carried away into forced exile in a foreign land where were spoken foreign languages and where were worshipped foreign gods. And they cried out to their God for help and in repentance for forgiveness. Heeding at last the call of prophets like Isaiah, who had told them that God had allowed all that had happened to happen, because for years and years, they and their leaders, including their kings and their priests, had been living and even worshiping as though the true ways and desires of their God were completely foreign to them. They'd been ignoring the poor. Their hearts and minds and souls had become possessed by their possessions. They were preoccupied with pomp and though they by and large still showed up for church on Sunday, it was pretty much impossible to see any evidence of what they heard in church in the way they lived their lives when they weren't in church. But prophets like Isaiah said something else too and began saying it more even now in exile. They said that though all that had happened had been allowed by God to happen, they were nevertheless still the chosen of God. They were nevertheless still oh so beloved of God and called still 
to be both the womb and the birthplace of God's love alive in the world, God's light shining in the world, and God's plan to have God's world, all of it, and all people back home again from the spiritual far countries where sin had taken them and taken such a toll on them. And though it took years, 40 or 50 years, finally they were allowed to go home again. Political pundits at the time and historians later observed that being able to go home again was the result of a regime change in the land that had held them captive. Prophets, on the other hand, told, that this, told them that this, rather above all, was about the plans and purposes of God, who is ever at work for good, whether the things or kings or kingdoms are coming or going, or rising or falling, and whose abiding interest is a regime change in the sin-charred rubble of human hearts. And so, by God, said the prophets, they came back. And the songs they sang on the way back were exciting ones, joyful ones, and hope-filled ones. But the sights that greeted them when they got back were sobering. Indeed, they were devastating. Picture on their faces the same looks you've been seeing on your news feeds pictures of the Ukrainians who have been allowed back to what have turned out to be the charred rubble ruins of their homes and hometowns. The rubble not only starkly reminding them of the staggering amount of work and resources that reconstruction would require, but also triggering renewed grief and trauma over the scope of the violence and suffering and death that had occurred there, where some of the dead's remains were still entombed in the rubble. Also triggered, of course, was the lingering fear. Are we safe now? Or will the, will the horrors of war be revisited upon us? Back in Jerusalem, a priest named Ezra and a civil servant named Nehemiah started to mobilize people and resources for the rebuilding, especially of the temple and of the city's protective walls. But there was so much work to do that it was almost impossible to imagine how the work would ever all be done. And zeal waned, and excitement faded replaced in many hearts and minds with the depression that just about can't not accompany such staggeringly depressive realities. And the terribly daunting task of Reconstruction slowed dramatically. 
even almost to a halt, raising in their minds now the very real prospect of those efforts failing entirely. Which is to say, and this is the stuff the deepest of depressions are made of, they began to believe that charred rubble was not only the defining image of their past and their present, it was also the image, the only image as far as they could see, that would define the entirety of their future. It was dark in the land, in other words, and the deepest darkness was found in the belief that dark is what it would always be. At which point two others raised their voices. Their names were Haggai, we say Haggai, and Zechariah, we say Zechariah, who were neither priests nor civil servants nor community organizers. Haggai and Zechariah rather were prophets who, when they spoke, said not, okay, people, come on, we can do this, all for one and one for all, right? What do you say? No, prophets, when they spoke, said, thus says the Lord. And that is the context. An audience so wearily wearied by all that had been done to them and all that needed to be done by them and the increasingly wearying and despairing belief that it couldn't ever possibly all get done, that is the context of our reading this morning from the prophet Zechariah, who lifted the vision of the weary from the charred rubble of their weariness to promise them that there was another doer at work in the world and among them. And that other doer was their God, from whom, in God's time, said Zechariah, would come to them a king whose ways and whose kingdom would not even be one little bit like the rising and falling and every one of them also in the end failing kings and kingdoms and empires of this world, either in its reach, which would be to the very ends of the earth, or in its modus operandi, which would be the way of not war but peace, not fear but faith, not bombing the hell out of you, but reaching with heaven's love all the way to you. And so to the wearied and despairing, thus says the Lord, said Zachariah, rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion, shout aloud. O daughter Jerusalem, lo, your king comes to you, triumphant and victorious is he, humble, and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the tanks and troop carriers from Mariupol, and the landmines and stench of death from Bucha, and the bombs and ballistic missiles from the Donbass. 
and he shall command peace to the nations. And his dominion shall not be from Moscow to Kiev. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. The priest Ezra, in the book of the Bible bearing his name, credits the prophets Haggai and Zechariah with the rescue of the flagging and floundering rebuilding efforts. And what did they rescue it with? Two things. First of all, not a work plan, but a promise. God is at work too. And so you personally don't need to be the doers of every single thing that needs doing. And second of all, not a blueprint to follow, but a dream to dream. In this case of a day when the regime change that would take place would reach even to the broken and hardened and charred and war-torn depths of human hearts. As the one before whom all would one day bow would be the one whose way, accompanied not by pride but by humility, and accomplished not by saber rattling at others but serving and sacrificing for others would be the way of peace. Peace between all people and nations rooted in the oh-so-deep and fertile soil of between peace between all people and nations and God. Sometimes you need more than a new plan. Sometimes you need a new dream to build your plans upon and to plan your plans toward for a plan without a dream is just a to-do list. Whereas a dream upon which we plan gives purpose to our lists. And if that dream upon which we plan is actually and truly God's dream and plan, then what we are given, if I dare be so bold, is not only the purpose of life, but the content of eternity. Jesus was reluctant to own, to claim, the title King. The reason certainly being that it is a word upon which we have hung so much damned baggage, baggage he wanted no part of. Nevertheless, it is he, it is Jesus, who orchestrated the details of Palm Sunday's storied procession into Jerusalem, clearly to own, and also not in words but in deeds and symbols, to proclaim his understanding of himself and his kind of kingdom to be in fulfillment of the prophecies of the prophet Zechariah when more than five centuries earlier he had prophesied rejoice 
greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. Lo, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the people absolutely understood that he was, not with words, but with deeds and with symbols saying that. Which is why they waved their palm branches in much the same way that flags and banners are waved today around the elite and the royal. And why they laid branches and garments on the path before them in much the same way that red carpets are laid today before the path of the elite and the royal. And, of course, it's why they shouted, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees, presumably concerned that Rome would catch wind of it all and perceive this as some kind of an insurrection, a threat to King Caesar and his kingdom, and thus respond the way Rome inevitably did respond to insurrections, that being with overwhelming and deadly and destructive and merciless power of their military might, told Jesus to tell the shouting people to shut up. To which Jesus said, can't be done. For if they were to stop shouting, the very stones on the ground around you would be shouting the same thing in their place. They, of course, would then get to work on the details of Plan B, planned upon the soil of their dream, that if he wouldn't shut the crowds up, they'd shut him up. And that, of course, is the story we will be gathering again to hear again this week, as church and state do conspire to shut him up by nailing him up to a cross. And the people, many of whom would by then have come to believe that if he was a king, he sure wasn't the kind of king they wanted or needed, would come Friday gather to shout around him again, but shouting this time that crucifixion is precisely what he did need. And the stones would again remain silent, save for the stones that I'm sure did groan with him when he stumbled upon them under the weight of his already bloodied cross. And in the end, finally, on that cross, he'd be silent too. Ah, but on the third day, there would be one stone that couldn't be silenced. That being the stone that would be set to seal him in a tomb, the sound of that stone rolling away then being the first shout that not only is he a king, he's exactly the one we need.
For the last thing we need is yet another king to provoke or lead us into yet another war with each other. For those wars, even when they are righteous by the world's standards and maybe even on some level need to be fought by the righteous, in this sin-bloodied world, for the sake of something closer to righteous justice, those wars, all of them, nevertheless, in the end, don't ultimately win us anything but new fronts that in sin's time will no doubt be fought over again some other time. Listen, look, see, will shout that stone as it rolls away. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Rejoice all sons and daughters. Shout aloud all the earth. Lo, your King comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he, humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the tanks and troop carriers from Mariupol and the landmines and stench of death from Bucha and the bombs and ballistic missiles from the Donbass. And he shall command peace to the nations and his dominion shall not be from Moscow to Kiev, his dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So people of God, here's the plan for this Holy Week and for the holy future it represents to us. Dream on. Dream God's dream. The dream of peace between all people and nations rooted in the oh-so-deep and fertile soil of peace between all people and nations and God. And seeing unfold again this week our King's plan, what he would do, what he specifically came to do, what he would give, what he would give up for the sake of God's plan. Let us, well, let us let St. Paul have the final word today on what planning our plans, what we can do, what we can give, what we can give up, because we do plan our plans upon God's dream and toward God's promise. Let the same mind be in you that was in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross.
Therefore God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bend in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen.